Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're going back to the womb and making babies, exploring how birth weight is linked to the risk of diabetes and investigating the multifaceted role of the hormone prolactin in pretty much everything in pregnancy. Happy New Year! We are delighted to be back for another season, bringing you fascinating stories from the frontiers and the history of genetics. Before we start, I want to flag up a brilliant opportunity for PhD students in the field of genetics. And that's the Genetic Society's Communicating Your Science workshop, running from the 26th to the 28th of April in the beautiful setting of Chicherley Hall near Milton Keynes in Buckinghamshire. Even better... As in previous years, the tutors on the course are your podcast hosts, me and Sally LePage, along with other members from my fab team from First Create the Media. It's free to attend from within the UK, and there's also a carer's allowance available to enable people with caring responsibilities to attend. Applications are open now, and they close at midnight on the 20th of February, so get in there quick if you want to come. Just follow the link in the show notes on the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com or go to the Genetic Society website, genetics.org.uk, and browse the grant section. I'll see you there. Back in November, I headed to the Royal Society in London for the Genetic Society's autumn meeting, focusing on the genetics of reproduction. It was a great day packed full of lectures from some of the world's leading lights looking at the science of baby making. So I caught up with a few of them to find out more about their work. First up, I just knew I had to grab Professor Dave Gratton from the University of Otago after his fascinating talk exploring some of his latest findings about the role of the hormone prolactin in pregnancy. It's long been known as a hormone that promotes lactation or the production of breast milk in mammals, hence the name, prolactin. But Dave and his team are finding out that it does so much more than that. It's thought of as a lactation hormone. But in fact, it's produced by all vertebrates apart from jawless fishes. So the vast majority of you know, fish, amphibia, birds, they all have prolactin. None of them lactate. So obviously this hormone's been around for a long time in evolution doing something else. My thinking on it is actually that it sort of had a, a role in facilitating reproduction across many different types of species. And in mammals, it's added this new function, which is lactation. But it, you know, overall, it's just essentially doing the same thing. It's promoting reproductive processes. Getting the body ready to make the next generation. Yeah. In the females, uh, that's certainly the case. But also in males, um, you know, helping the males produce appropriate behaviour. I mean, the best example of that is in birds, actually. The levels of prolactin in male birds promotes them to sit on the nest. You know, some species of bird, the male will sit on the on the eggs and roost them. So prolactin has similar roles in males and females. It just happens that it's more prominent in females because they have the pregnancy and lactation. Here's an interesting question before we get on to the role of prolactin in mammals that you've been studying. Have you looked at seahorses? Because it's the males that do the childcare there. Yeah, we haven't looked at seahorses, but I have had that exact thought. I think there's a, there's a number of interesting species where their life history is quite different. And I'm always thinking, oh, I wonder what prolactin is doing in them. But no, we haven't looked at seahorses. There you go, you can have that one for free. Yeah. So let's talk about the work that you're doing. So you're looking in 
mice at prolactin. So tell me about some of the areas that you're exploring about how it's acting in pregnancy on the brain and what it's up to. We started out looking at prolactin purely to understand how its secretion is controlled because under most conditions in males and females, prolactin levels are very low. And if they're high, that causes problems uh, like infertility. But in pregnancy and then lactation, prolactin levels rise. And so I was interested in that question as to why the feedback control of prolactin changed and why it goes high in lactation. So we started looking at the brain, particularly focused on the regions of the brain that we knew were involved in the control of prolactin. But as soon as we started looking at the brain and looking at the prolactin receptor, we found it in all sorts of places, many, many parts of the hypothalamus in particular. So that's the part of the brain that's involved in a lot of control of homeostatic processes. Many of those cells have the prolactin receptor. And so we started thinking, why are there so many different neurons that are expressing the prolactin receptor? And I started thinking about it from the wider perspective of, well, when is prolactin high? It's high in pregnancy. It's high in lactation. So why would the brain need to be doing anything different under those conditions? And then I started thinking about all of the things that change in a mother during those processes. And I thought, well, maybe prolactin is a signal just across the board, the physiological state of pregnancy. And so we've essentially looked at this in two different ways. One is we'll look at pregnancy and say something is changing. And so a good example is fertility. The menstrual cycle stops. And we think, okay, could that be being driven by prolactin? And we do various experiments to look at the pathways that we know are involved in that process. And we also do it the other way around is just identifying cells that express the prolactin receptor and we've found a number of neuronal cell types that express the prolactin receptor. And then we ask the question, well, why, why would that neuron have to behave differently in pregnancy or lactation? And both ways have kind of ended up with this idea that, that the high levels of prolactin have a broad effect on multiple different systems. So you presented some really fascinating data at the Genetic Society meeting today about activity in pregnancy and the role of prolactin there. Tell me about that experiment. Where did that start from and what did you do? That was an experiment that actually came as a total surprise. So we, we were interested in the idea that females, pretty much all species, gain weight during pregnancy. And, and that's not just fetal weight and placenta, it's actual laying down additional fat. And the idea behind that, I think, is it seemed to be adaptive because pregnancy and particularly lactation is very metabolically demanding and so it's almost like in preparation for that mothers store a bit of energy because baby's going to suck you dry yeah exactly <laughs> and if there's not enough food around during lactation you've still got to be able to lactate so this is a very common thing and we were interested in why do the mothers eat more so we decided to put the animals in a metabolic cage where we could monitor their how much they were eating how much their energy expenditure and things and it just so happened that within the, the metabolic cages we had there was a running wheel, so you could measure the voluntary activity of the animals as well. To be honest, we didn't really think about it. It was just part of the equipment that we were using. We were interested in food intake and energy expenditure, but not physical activity. But as soon as we started looking at the data, we realized that the pregnant animals really didn't run anywhere near as much as when they were non-pregnant. So as soon as they became pregnant, and this is even before implantation, so it's not like there's any physical constraint on it, they just stopped exercising. Um, the feet up. Yeah. Oh, they've yeah, yeah. got to make this baby now. <laughs> exactly. And the reason is there might be many reasons. We were originally thinking about it as an energy conservation mechanism. But actually, more recently, there's a range of other things. You know, is there a change in reward? Normally, they find running rewarding. 
maybe in pregnancy it's no longer rewarding because the systems are more focused on the pups or the offspring. But really in pregnancy that's it's pretty early and there aren't any pups at that point. So it's a really interesting question and when you see the profile of essentially as soon as they get pregnant they stop running, they essentially don't run until the pups are taken away, so right through our pregnancy and lactation. Those are exactly the times when prolactin is high. Someone like me looks at that and says, well that must be prolactin doing that. And so we essentially did the experiment where we knocked out the prolactin receptor from specific parts of the brain and under those conditions the animals kept on running so even when they were very pregnant they would continue to choose to go onto the running wheel and run. So what that told us is that it's actually the prolactin that is causing this change in behaviour. Completely unexpected, you know, there was no prior reason to guess that and we only really observed it by accident but it was really fascinating and it's such a profound change in behaviour purely due to the action of this hormone. So I'm sure people who have been pregnant listening to this will go like, there's baby brain, right? But it does something to you. Is this actually starting to get towards the mechanisms of what that kind of the baby brain thing is? Oh, I think for sure it will be. You're exactly right. When, when we were discussing this in my lab group, in my lab meeting, um, I have several researchers who, you know, have young children and so, you know, recently been through pregnancy. And I asked that exactly, well, you know, what, what happened to your, you know, your willingness to exercise? And uniformly they said, I was so tired. First trimester, I was so tired. And I was thinking, well, there's no reason for you to be tired in first trimester. You know, it's not like there's no real additional physical work. Or I think that maybe there is something going on in, in the brain and the hormones are actually saying something's different now. You have to change your behavior. But whether that's true or not remains to be seen. There's always the example of the women who, you know, run marathons right through their pregnancy and who knows what's different. But I really think that these hormones will be having an effect on our behaviour as well as the physiology of the mothers. You've been looking at the impact of prolactin on female animals as they go through pregnancy. But you said earlier, you know, males have prolactin. What's the situation with males? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think for about 20 years of my research career studying prolactin, I would get asked the question, you know, almost every month or so, why do males have prolactin? And, you know, I did a bit of hand-waving and we didn't really know. Mm. <laughs> yeah. We were involved in a study um, in, in collaboration with a Swedish group run by Christian Broberger in um, Stockholm, where we asked the question of, well, what is the role of prolactin in the male brain with respect to parental behaviour. And we took advantage of the fact that in mice, virgin mice who have never mated don't show parental behaviour. Actually, they tend to attack pups, if anything. But after they've become fathers, their behaviour changes and they will actually be parental. They'll retrieve the pups and nest them and, and sit over them, much like a mother, a female mouse will do. And so we wanted to say, is that change in behaviour dependent on prolactin? Basically what we found is that if we knock out the prolactin receptor in the same parts of the brain uh, where it's acting in the females to promote maternal behaviour, we would also lose the ability of the fathers to show that behaviour. So actually prolactin in the male is doing something very, very similar to the females. The really interesting part of that is that the levels of prolactin in the blood are very, very low in males all the time and they don't seem to change during interaction with the babies or anything. 
It's just the presence of that receptor seems to be important. So even at that very low level of prolactin, that seems to drive parental behavior. And Christian's group were able to show that if you compared a mouse to a rat, rats have even lower levels of prolactin in the male, and they never show parental behavior, whereas mice have slightly higher levels of prolactin, and they do show parental behavior. So in males, it seems to be a really subtle difference, but prolactin is having a very similar effect from a behavioral perspective as it is in females. Are there other things you notice when you start manipulating the levels of prolactin with the kind of genetic systems that you've got? There's quite a broad range of effects. Sort of one that caught us a little bit by surprise is body temperature and thermoregulation. We actually did an experiment where we were manipulating the activity of neurons, trying to understand this pathway that's involved in parental behavior. But what we found is that when we activated a particular population of neurons that expressed the prolactin receptor, we caused a profound hypothermia. And so basically, like, really, really cold little mice. Yeah, that's what happened to them. I mean, prolactin doesn't do that, but the cells that have the prolactin receptors, if you activate them, can do that. And so we asked ourselves the question, it's a bit like I talked about before, is that, okay, here's a cell type that has the prolactin receptor. Why would they have to be different in pregnancy? And if you think about it, actually pregnancy is a really significant challenge to thermoregulation because the mother has got a whole lot more metabolism going on and she also has to lose temperature for the babies because elevated body temperature is bad for the babies. And so there's actually going to be changes in thermoregulation or adaptive changes in thermoregulation in pregnancy. So we're really interested now in, in you know, having seen that these thermoregulatory circuits are responsive to prolactin, we're starting to look at well, what is the role of prolactin in controlling them? And again, what we've seen is if we knock out the prolactin receptor in these thermoregulatory circuits, it makes the, the mothers less able to lose temperature. And so they run their whole temperature at a slightly elevated body temperature. And under normal conditions, um, that may be okay. They can kind of cope with that. But if they're kept in a warm environment, then it becomes really disastrous and they tend to lose just abandon the, the litters because they're not coping with the elevated temperature. And I think that, you know, given climate change and the various things we're going through at the moment, this is actually quite an important adaptive response of pregnancy. And again, you know, something that we've found that prolactin is involved in when, you know, we really didn't expect it. So, but it fits with the overall idea that this is a, just a broad spectrum adaptive response to pregnancy. I love the idea that, like, you know, we have that metaphor of you've got a bun in the oven and this is like turning the temperature <laughs> dial down on it when you're getting too hot. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, I think the way that it works is that your, your body's kind of like a set point in that once you get to a certain level, you activate the systems that you have to cool off, start sweating, flush blood to the skin, those various things. And what, what we think in, is happening in pregnancy is that that set point is just becoming a little bit more sensitive. So it just activates earlier. And that's a kind of an adaptive response to make sure you don't get too hot. And mostly that's about protecting the baby from getting too hot because that's bad for brain development in particular. What's the next thing that you're interested in? I mean, it sounds like prolactin does everything, so there's so many things you could look at. What have you got your eye on next? I think the thermoregulation question is one that has opened up to other ideas. And one place that we are thinking about is menopause and hot flushes around menopause. 
And then other things, we, you know, there's many other things that change in pregnancy that we haven't even started to look at yet. There's changes in respiration, changes in cardiovascular system. We're starting to identify some of the cell types that are involved in, and we'd like to look at those as well. But there's, I think there's just too many things for our small lab to cover them all. I'm looking for help. <laughs> That's Dave Grattan from the University of Otago. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? Recent figures show that around 1 in 10 people over the age of 40 in the UK are living with type 2 diabetes, adding up to millions of cases. But according to Rachel Freethy, Associate Professor and Wellcome Trust Senior Research Fellow at the University of Exeter Medical School, for at least some of these people, the seeds of their disease may have been sown back in the very earliest stages of life. Rachel and her team have been looking at the correlation between birth weight and the risk of developing diabetes later in life. And I will say now, Drinks receptions at conferences aren't the best environment for recording, so apologies in advance for the background noise in this one. So our main interest is why there is this relationship between being a smaller baby and then having a, a greater risk of type 2 diabetes later in life. And we have been looking in our studies to, to see whether that might be explained at least partly by genetics. And what that means is genetic variants, which predispose you to type 2 diabetes, but also those same genetic variants early in life might have a role in birth weight. And we suspect that might be the case because fetal insulin, so insulin produced by the fetus, is a really important growth factor. But insulin, when you're an adult or a child, is the hormone that controls your blood sugar. So we think those genetic variants might kind of be, be responsible for linking those two characteristics early and late in life. That is fascinating. I'd never really thought about that because I've known about, you know, insulin and insulin related growth factors. And you're like, yeah, they make you grow. And I oh, know that that is the same thing, right? Yeah, it is. It is. And um, but you, you mentioned maternal diabetes. And so in our studies, although we're interested in what goes on in the genetics of the baby, the genetics of the mother is really important as well. And mothers who have diabetes in pregnancy generally have higher levels of glucose. And that is responsible for making their babies grow. And if the baby grows really large, then that can cause problems. So when we look at our genetic studies, we have to really be careful to try and distinguish between the effects of the mother's genetics and the baby's genetics. And sometimes they can kind of pull in opposite directions. And of course, like a baby is half the mother anyway, genetically speaking. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. How do you start to tease this apart? What genetic studies are you doing? Who are you looking at? How do you find them? So we have a range of different approaches. We use these fairly large genome-wide association studies and our collaborators who we work with have developed these really clever statistical techniques where you can take the information on an, an individual's genetics and their birth weight um, association and then the mother's genetics and the birth weight association and put them together and actually estimate what are the independent effects even better, although what we need is kind of larger and larger samples, and they're kind of coming online, but they're, they're not as available just yet, are large studies of fathers, mothers, and children, where you have the genetics of all of them, and you can put them together and really try and work out what's going on. So have you found any interesting clues so far? 
Yeah, we have. We found quite a lot of genetic variants that predispose to type 2 diabetes are also associated with having a lower birth weight. So we know that there is at least some of that relationship between birth weight and diabetes is linked by fetal genes. What we've also been able to do is kind of say, well, actually, it's not all type 2 diabetes genes. So some of them are important earlier on. Some of them come into play a bit later on. And actually, the, the genetic variants that we've found, the genes that, that are nearby are kind of, they're leading us to understanding a little bit more about the mechanisms involved. So we know that the genetic variants that tend to associate with birth weight are the ones that influence how much you produce insulin. They're not so much the variants that make you more likely to become obese and get diabetes that way, or they're not the ones that influence your liver function, which can lead to diabetes. So the genetics is helping us to tease apart these different mechanisms. And one of the things I have to ask is, you know, you say that the fetus makes insulin and it's getting glucose from its mum. Well, why isn't it getting insulin from its mum? You know, doesn't this all go through the placenta? So the mother's glucose does cross the placenta and that's available to the baby. The mother's insulin doesn't. So it's the baby's insulin produced by the baby's pancreas that is the thing that responds to the mother's glucose and then makes the baby grow. So the baby's de absolutely dependent on the mother's glucose for the food, but it's the baby's insulin that's causing the growth. So what does this information tell us? Where do we take this kind of information next? What can you do now you're finding these genes? So one thing is to actually combine the genetic variants that we've found with other studies, studies of other pregnancy characteristics, studies that might lead us a little bit more to the actual genes involved to try and understand the biology um, of fetal growth and pregnancy even more. The second thing we can do is using those maternal genetic variants that influence birth weight by the, ut the intrauterine environment, we can actually ask questions about what maternal factors are important things like glucose or blood pressure uh, and other things that might circulate in the mother. And then finally, we're interested to see whether if we add up a kind of a genetic score for birth weight in the mother and in the father, can that add to other information that could be obtained in pregnancy to give some idea, um, to improve the kind of prediction of whether a baby is going to be large or, or small. And then presumably, if this information could be useful for the baby as they grow up and they're thinking about their own health, I guess. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's worth pointing out that it's not very predictive. So we're only really explaining a kind of a small amount of the risk of type 2 diabetes but, but by the genetics. But it's one thing in combination with a, a whole lot of others. What do you want to find out next? What do you think is still really the big unknown? A, a lot of our genetic studies have been limited so far by the data that's available, limited to populations of Northern European ancestry. And there's a whole lot more work to be done to look at diversity in human populations and to make sure we are um, understanding genetics in all humans. So that is a real priority for our studies, to get studies together which are more representative of, of the human population. And I guess the other thing is that we want to combine our studies where we look at birth weight with other people with other expertise where they're looking at pregnancy outcomes such as preeclampsia or things that can go wrong in pregnancy and see whether there's any crossover there and whether any of our studies can inform those adverse pregnancy outcomes which are really important for us to understand. Rachel Freethy from the University of Exeter. And finally, I also caught up with Courtney Hanna, a group leader at the Centre for Trophoblast Research at the University of Cambridge. She's fascinated not by how to make a baby, but how to make the vital organ that sustains it, 
the placenta. As we explored with Ros John and Sam Bajati back in episode 20 of season 4, Baby Boom, the placenta is an extraordinary tissue that is very poorly understood for something that has such an essential role in reproduction, a view that Courtney also agrees with. So I think it's quite interesting. I mean, we know quite a lot about how cell identity specified or maybe initiated in the embryo. And this is really because it's been the predominant focus of sort of the stem cell field and trying to research and understand gene regulation and how one lineage is specified from another and so on and so on. I think we know comparatively little about how this is done in the placenta. And actually, I think it's so underexplored, we might not even know all of the cell types that are in a placenta. And I think we've heard from many different researchers that it's incredibly complex because you have both fetal and maternal cells. And so really this is unique amongst organs in that you would have two individuals contributing to a single organ. I was amazed one of the speakers this afternoon was saying, you know, you think your favorite organ is complicated. That's nothing on the placenta. You've got all these different cell types and, you know, you've got all these different things. And it's also developing and changing and genes are being turned on and genes are being turned off. And what are some of the things that you're exploring, particularly with these aspects of gene regulation? So we're reapproaching some of the early models that have been described in the field and going back and looking at so how a specific enzyme can mark the genome so that we know a gene needs to be turned on later in development. Or, for example, maybe a set of genes that needs to be repressed throughout development. And then we're trying to evaluate that when you're missing this enzyme, do we fail to get these genes appropriately turned on? And that does this actually implicate what cell types we can get in a mature placenta? So this is kind of the approach we're taking at the moment to try to hone in on the really key developmental processes that are important for this. And we're talking here, aren't we, about this concept of you know, gene regulation and epigenetic regulation, which we have talked a little bit about in previous podcasts, and the idea that you get these little marks, almost like post-it notes, put yeah. on the genes and these little sort of methylation marks. So what are you finding when you start to play around with the enzymes that put these marks on and off? Yeah, so we're just starting, really. Um, so we have a model that sort of sets an active mark at genes that need to be turned on later in development. And this model was described previously as having a very strong embryonic phenotype. So it fails to appropriately turn on the right genes in the right cell types, and so you don't get proper patterning of the embryo. But actually, when we've gone back to this and looked at how the placenta is doing, it barely forms a placenta at all. So it seems like the cells can't even start to differentiate into the right thing. And so this may actually result in a very early lethality in this model, which perhaps if the placenta was rescued, we would be able to progress further into development. So this is just one, one example, but we think that it looks like this enzyme is absolutely critical in the placenta. So you've talked about a model. Like, What is this? What's the system that you've set up to study this phenomenon? So we generate these mouse models, which are missing some of these key enzymes. So an example of this is a DNA methyltransferase, which establishes a repressive mark onto DNA itself and allows genes to be silenced. And it's been widely reported 
to be important, and it's widely studied actually in human pregnancy. So there are hundreds of studies that have looked at DNA methylation in human placenta for association with various pregnancy complications. And I think one of the challenges in interpreting these studies is we don't know whether these changes that we see in methylation in a human placenta actually might implicate or, or alter gene expression. And so we're hoping these basic research questions in this mouse model system can shed some light on that. With this knowledge, understanding that this enzyme is important and studying the processes that you are, what can we start to do with this knowledge? So, I mean, our hope is that really studies in mouse model will hone in on particular pathways that we think are maybe particularly sensitive to changes in a methylation state, or so some of these post-its, if they're not laid down quite right, they may be particularly sensitive to becoming regulated in the wrong way. And this will kind of give us candidates to go look at in humans to potentially link to some of the environmental exposures or stressors or um, complications that are seen in pregnancy. What are some of the questions you still want to find out? What's, I mean, it sounds like we hardly know anything really yes, about the percent yeah. of it. What, what, what's the next thing that you really want to know? So it, there's quite a dogma in the field that because the placenta is such a short-lived organ, that it's not really regulated in the same way as you would an, an organ in the embryo. And so there's some, I guess, thoughts in the field that maybe gene regulation doesn't need to be as tightly controlled. And I guess we, I would argue that maybe it needs to be controlled in an even more fine-tuned way because it has such an important role and plays the role of so many organs during pregnancy. And so really to demonstrate that epigenetics and gene regulation is critical in placental development and that this is some really important area to study. And it's like the most important time of your life. If you don't have a placenta, if you don't have your connection to your mother, it's like, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Courtney Hannah. And thanks to my other guests, Dave Gratton and Rachel Freethy, and also to the meeting organisers, Ros John and Marika Sharalambus, and of course, to the Genetic Society for the opportunity to attend. Next time, we'll be going even further back in reproductive history to explore the literal genesis of our species as we go on a hunt for the genetic Adam and Eve. Who were they? When did they live? And should we even be referring to them using these names anyway? For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip. And please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. I promise it does make a difference and it does help more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written and presented by me, Katani. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mail, and audio production is by Sally LePage and Emma Verner. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>